Welcome to On Carrying a Concern, where we share stories of friends in service and also some reflections and lessons from the road. I'm Khaled Keith Perry. I'm Christina Keith Perry. So this week we have Jay O'Hara, who is a member of West Falmouth Preparative Meeting, which is one of the member constituent meetings of Sandwich Monthly Meeting, one of the oldest meetings on the North American continent. He's going to talk to us about his experience of living into ever-increasing faithfulness in a way that reordered everything in his life. This uh, interview was done in, in during New England Yearly Meeting annual sessions. Um, the day after Jay was invited and did uh, deliver a plenary address about um, about the the work that he did as a as a climate action and a witness. Um, where he and some colleagues took a lobster boat and anchored it in the way of commercial vessels carrying coal, right? As a as a protest against the realities of the ways that fossil fuel are kind of ending the world, and so you'll hear him mention several times in the in the show this reference to this action around around the, that kind of piece of climate disobedience. And people can look in the show notes and see some links to information about the, the lobster boat trial. Yeah. And and you can learn about Jay. And as we've said before, part of what we're trying to do on this show is not just capture the outward stuff that you can maybe Google about a person, but kind of explore what it's like to what it was like for them. What was the experience inwardly that got them to the place that you could see what happens outwardly? So before we jump into that, just a little bit of kind of podcasty housekeeping. Um, several people have pointed out the episodes are very long, and that's because we didn't make them shorter. Well, there's so much goodness in them. How could we make them shorter? By editing better. Um, however, um, the point of how to use it is we have put in musical interludes so that if you want to take breaks... When you hear the music starting, you know that you're coming to the kind of end of a thematic segment, and you can take a break there. Um, so if you're thinking about using this in adult religious ed, you don't have to listen to the whole show. It's chunked into thematic units based on kind of content in the in the show, and they're always bookended by music. So kind of like the user's manual for episodes of On Care and Concern um, tell you that the music is is a digestible chunk. Uh, I, I I came among friends uh, at Earlham College, mm. um, and my for some for some odd reason um, there were, were a number of Quakers. Um, in my freshman dorm, who I was immediately kind of friends with. And I went to worship my first week at Earlham as an undergrad. And I never, I never left. Hmm. And why did you go to Earlham, do you know? Um, because I didn't get into Oberlin. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a common response? To I don't know, but it's felt no, pretty true. So I am grateful that I, I really did terribly in calculus in high school. Um, so I attribute that in part to Oberlin's rejection of me. 
Um, but I, you know, I had I had a vague sense of who Quakers were. A very vague sense of who Quakers were. I like mostly from reading James Michener's Chesapeake uh, in like middle school uh, Quakers, um, and you know, good peaceful people doing good things, whatever. Mm-hmm. Abolitionist sort of history stuff, um, but really, really knew very little. Um, I had grown up uh, in a congregational church, UCC, um, and as we get more into story, that will probably surface again. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, when did you? When did the you consider yourself a Quaker? <laughs> um, uh, I don't actually know when that happened. Um, I remember distinctly a um, a walk between. Uh, whatever administration building towards the meeting house or the library with Tracy Peterson, yeah. um, in which Tr- Tracy said, "Jay, why why aren't you a Quaker yet?" You know, it's like my senior year or something of, at Earl, and you know, and I said, "You know, Tracy, I you know been measuring you know measuring myself up against what I consider a Quaker to be, and I'm just really figuring out what that what that yardstick looks like, and you know, I'm just figuring out what it what it would mean to be a Quaker." And she's like. That means you are one. <laughs> I'm like, damn it. <laughs> um, so I think I think probably from that that encounter on, I started being a little more like maybe I am a Quaker, not just showing up mm-hmm. on every week. Um, but I didn't apply for membership until I was settled back on Cape Cod um, to to sandwich. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably was eight years ago now, or so mm-hmm. nine years ago. So it's interesting to me, I mean, there are in various quarters conversations about the capacity or inclination of young adults to be grounded in like a monthly meeting or grounded in the religious society in general. Do you remember being part of any of those conversations or thinking, oh, there isn't a place for me or how does that work? No, I mean, I felt very much included. I, I So after Erlon, I, ha- I was back in the Cape for a year, year and a half, and I went to worship and was like... Yeah. And in the summers, had started developing a little bit of a relationship with friends in West Fountain. Um, uh, then was in D.C. for a couple of years, attended friends meeting in Washington. You know, was accepted as a as a friend. Um, very clear, I wasn't going to apply for membership there, but I I think I also um, more than most people my age uh, have a uh, an extreme sense of of place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I already felt very attached and grounded to place mm-hmm. on Cape Cod in my hometown, which is where I moved back and, and lived for another eight years after, after my time at FCNL. So, mm-hmm. um, so just becoming, knowing that that was a place where I wanted to seek membership, knowing that that's where my home is, mm-hmm. um, and having read way too much Wendell Berry in my life, uh, knew that like that, the, all those things fit together as a piece with who I am mm. in my life, um, which I don't think is the typical experience of people in their twenties and thirties. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So I knew I wanted that geographical grounding in, in place, um, mm-hmm. and and with a with an intention that I wasn't going to be moving mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the the follow up question, which is one. You love to ask. It's like, why have you bothered to stick around? So you, you became a member in Quakerism. Yeah. Well, that's the thousand dollar question. I mean, <laughs> I 
I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe I should just back up and kind of just tell how I ended up, really ended up as a clicker. Talk, I, what, talk about what's the difference between really and whatever you told us so far. Well, I mean, yeah. So, so I trace my like first. Now, looking back on it, I I see like my first, and maybe this is the this is the Woolman like Sparrow like um, experience. Um, but the first inclinations of 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 the tendency in me to to obey the truth in my heart rather mm. than what was expected of me mm-hmm. um, to whatever it was eighth or ninth grade in congregational church you go through confirmation class and mm-hmm. expect to be confirmed um, at the end of the year and I had not been baptized as a child. Um, my parents hadn't realized that they needed to get their kid back into the church, you know, until I was a little older. Um, and they were like, oh, crap, we better go to church because we have kids now. Um, and, and, and this moment standing next to the kitchen stove in my parents' kitchen where my mother said, you know, well, Jake, you know, we're, it's springtime. We're coming up on the end of confirmation process. And, and before you get confirmed, you know, you will need to schedule time for your baptism when you know let's pick a date and having the absolute clarity in my heart to say i can't do that i cannot in good conscience stand and say the words that would be expected of me uh and to 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 move in that direction of accepting the creed that would be expected of me to Mm -hmm. um to be on that path towards membership in that church so so that was like, I think the, you know, and then that elicited, um, you know, quite the first round of parental consternation, particularly from my mother about my like life choices where she broke down in tears, you know, saying that she felt that she had failed as a mother, worried that I was going to hell, um, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I like in some ways I can trace back like my first inclinations as a Quaker to that. I'm like, oh, but that that's the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that that stuff was Quaker stuff, but that there's some there was something at, at work in you there. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Something at work in me there that I didn't know where it fit in the world, mm-hmm. and didn't know that. I mean, I think it took me a long time in the beginning of attending weekly worship um, at Clear Creek meeting um, to getting to whatever level where the faith really started to make sense. Um, I took took Quakerism 101 with Steve Angel um, and and so for years could had the, I mean, this is, is classic, classic possession without, or profession without possession. Like I, I could speak the Quaker lingo. I knew more about Quakerism than, mm. than most of the people that, uh, and most of my like younger colleagues at FCNL that I was working with. Like, so like all of a sudden, like I was the Quaker expert guy. Um, but, but, but it was a profession without a possession, um, in a lot of ways, and a re- repetition of dogmas, um, until only a few years ago, um, I would say only maybe f- 
I'd have to actually look back chronolog- chronologically about four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, what what about those dogmas being repeated? So what were those dogmas that you were repeating, and what about them was appealing to you enough to keep you around? Um, uh, I'm not sure because we say we don't have dogma, right? I, I mean, think there's a difference of what kept me around yeah. and okay. and those dogmas. Uh, what kept me around was the experience I had of uh, of worship uh-huh. and 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 I think I learned worship from the like closed eyes and gentle smile on Michael Burkle's face <laughs> sitting on the facing bench at Kirkwood meeting <laughs> um, and and that that experience of a of a peace a joy that was clearly animating him and his life mm-hmm. um and his occasional ministry um, made a very strong impression on me, mm-hmm. as well as his lived example of working part time um, to to have a full spiritual life. Um, the The things that I think I repeated, or that I grabbed onto when people would ask, like, "Well, Quakerism, what the what's that?" was often around. Um, I think I think the dogma of experiential rather than um, than belief centered um, definitely what really first got me going was you know it was the beginning of the of. You know, it was, uh, it was the beginning of my sophomore year in college was 9-11. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was, I came in as a very, I came in on the political trajectory of like activist Quakerism. Um, and that's kind of what kept me for the, the a number of years mm-hmm. um, before the spiritual stuff started really clicking. Um, you know, what else were those dogmas? I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to spend a bit more time. I can remember, like, explaining Quakerism in various ways, mm-hmm. but I can't remember what it was that I was using. Would you... So, th- this is interesting, because you, you described the experience of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that before... And you also talked about how f- like it was maybe just four or five years ago that something shifted. Mm-hmm. Um would you say that before that four or five year mark, whatever that mark is, that you had experienced a covered meeting? Yes. Okay. Yes. But I hadn't experienced the radical reorientation of my life, mm. which happened, I would say, four or five years ago in a way that then opened up, mm-hmm. which is what kind of what the story I was telling yesterday, which then opened up the possibility of the faithfulness that led me to the lobster boat and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I, I struggled around the question of like, what is God? Who is God for a long time? Um, um, and it was only maybe in the last, maybe a little further ago than five years, but, but really in that time span that, that I started to be able to see my experience mirrored in scripture and other, other writings about what people were calling God. Mm -hmm. In the Judeo-Christian scriptures, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. 
And do you, is there a moment or a series of moments in that four or five years ago that made you feel like you really clicked with it? So uh, that yeah. clicking, is there, is there a clicking? Is Some there people, a day, clicking yeah, day? Yeah. Um, or clicking six months? <laughs> I'm always just curious about when that happens and why that happens. I think it's it's fascinating. I think it was I think it was a bit longer. Like it was just like piece by piece, very slowly. Um, and then I looked back and said, "Oh, this is really different from where I was." Um, and the you know I, I i think i think the 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 real crucible for it was around you know i had i come back to cape cod i'd gotten involved with the like secular climate movement and the student climate movement and i had i was really um trying to do good work um but found myself repeating found myself back in the secular activist trap of and treadmill that I that I um, wanted to avoid, maybe, and found myself found that the fruits of where I was were becoming poisonous, mm. um, and 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 lots of self loathing and de- and going kind of back into depression that I had had some in in high school. Um, a harsh judgmentalism about people who weren't, um, you know, weren't doing enough. Um, like really, really harsh on my friends who I felt like got it on climate change, but then just like go on living their life. Um, how, like, how could you, <laughs> uh, take them by the neck? Um, and just, and, and, uh, not knowing how to interact with the world that wasn't waking up despite my energy mm-hmm. um, and everyone else's energy and trying to trying to fix it in quotation marks mm-hmm. um, and then the watershed was realizing that I, I had to stop I had to quit I had to step away because I knew that I not only was I suffering like the work was suffering mm-hmm. step away from activism yeah yeah and I just like quit it all um, how was that for you? Um, it just was like lighter. Like I didn't, I, I already had some sense that I was just going to be open and trusting wherever I, whatever was led next, but I wasn't going to go out crusading for the next thing. I wasn't going to make a plan. Huh? I was going to wait. Yeah. I was going to wait. Mm-hmm. Just, just wait. Um, and, and that really turned me back, um, very, I, I turned back very consciously. Not that I had left. Not that I had stopped attending meeting or anything. Right. I like, had been consistent um, in in worship and in business and all that sort of stuff. Um, but that ter- redoubled my um, focus, I guess, mm-hmm. um, um, and with intent to say, "No, I'm going to ground. I'm going to ground this in my faith somehow," um, and. And it was actually didn't take that long before a bunch of other of us 
others of us who had been feeling the same hunger um, put together our, the Young Adult Friends Climate Working Group and, and started chewing it on it from that perspective. Um, the image I just got, I just want to test that with you, is that like you had this activism, you had the spirituality, you knew that if you asked the question, the spirituality would support the activism, but they were running on parallel tracks. They weren't actually the same thing up until... Yeah, know. yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Like you could exactly. L- legitimate cognitively... Well, it's, they all were, very, it's all good work, right. you know, like, <laughs> I'm called to be an activist, whatever, yeah. um, which is really different from um, the call to be faithful, right. I think. So I, um, I kind of resonate with with Jay's story a little bit in that um, I certainly uh, kind of came to the Religious Society of Friends for political purposes. I think a lot of people do. And one of the things that I thought was interesting in his story, um, not just kind of in his personal narrative, but of the ways in which this shakes out for, um, I think, friends in general, has to do with the fact that that's really a lot of the story of the Religious Society of Friends um, certainly in the liberal tradition, I don't know about others, but I, I think liberal yearly meetings and monthly meetings that identify with liberal yearly meetings for much of the 20th and, and 21st century is that our influx was around um, Vietnam. I know I, I know I heard lots of stories around people coming to friends during the kind of late 60s and early 70s. And then also um, kind of reconnecting to the Religious Society of Friends or plugging in for the first time uh around the the wars in the middle east from the united states and even just recently um you know here at fresh pond we we saw a number of folks kind of start coming to meeting again or come to meeting for the first time after the election of donald uh trump to the presidency and so i think there's ways in which kind of there are some political machinations behind what get people in the door the first time uh, which has to do with a kind of uh, history, whether it's an imagined history or real history or somewhere in the middle, it's irrelevant. But there's some idea that the Quakers are some kind of people who I can be among to do this kind of political resistance work with, and it gets people in the door. Well, yes. And I also, I think the history is deeper than that. I think there's a significant group of folks who came to the Religious Society of Friends as conscientious objectors to war. It was part of their their pursuit of conscience and alternative service for the Second World War. And but, but do you think that they came to friends because they were COs they or were, because they were friends, they were COs? No, they, I think that a lot of people were exposed to friends because they were COs. Not at least my experience in Pacific Yearly Meeting, there are a number of folks who came to friends through their COness. And then they were exposed to other in the camps while doing alternative service. They met this group of people who were compelling mm-hmm. to them. And then they themselves became Quaker gotcha, or Brethren or Mennonite. Yep. I also, I think that there's some component of people who are coming for political reasons. I also think that they're coming to make sense of yep. what's going on. Religion is meaning making. Right. Of course. Yeah. So it's not just to find a group of like-minded social activists, it's 
also a group of people who are asking questions that are trying to dig deep. Well, and, and that's one of the things I think that was really interesting that Jay says, right, is that he came in, um, really learned about Quakerism. He knew all the Quaker dogma. That's what he says, right? right? So he knew all the right things. He knew how to talk about woman did this, woman did that, George Fox did this, this is the testimony of this. You know, he knew all of the the, the nuts and bolts of it, but but they weren't actually merged or integrated in his life. He knew all of the Quaker facts. He knew all the kind of uh, Quaker cred stuff. Right. And he was doing activism and he could justify the one through the other, but they weren't really united. And it wasn't really until they reunited that he really felt like he really started to kind of cook, uh, kind of cook on all cylinders. Right. That's it, a mixed metaphor. I like it, though. Have you ever tried to fry an egg on an engine block? No. But I mean, I think I think that the merging of those two things is really interesting. Right. You asked him, have you ever had you been in a covered meeting? He was like, yep. Right. So it wasn't like a covered meeting like, oh, now I get it. Right. Now. Now I've understood the Holy Spirit's presence. Like, yeah, I had, I had done that. That's why I was sticking around. But it hadn't actually clicked that they were the one and same in a maybe a, a experiential way. And it wasn't until that happened. Well, I, I hear as he distinguishes that notion of occupation as the thing that defines him, that. He was an activist and he was defined by this occupation and the trappings in the community of practice, which he now sees as toxic. And that's what he was. It was being. The other, the alternative to that, laying it all down and then really listening was a process of becoming. And I I think that that for me is a really nice um, nugget, kind of an encapsulation of what is powerful about the process of the Religious Society of Friends, a constant becoming. And it's really interesting, right? Because he, he says um, for him, the call to something, and I, and I think here we're thinking about the call to be uh, an activist as an occupation. That's kind of how I heard that. Right. Is different than a call to faithfulness out of which whatever happens will happen. Right. And for him, he really separates them. I'm not sure they're always so clear. I don't, I mean, I don't think there's a, 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 a bold line on the ground where it's clearly the one or the other. I mean, his experience is his experience. Right. That's for sure. But I don't know if that tracks. The call to something is very different than a call to faithfulness. I think sometimes the call to faithfulness might look like a call to something. Thoughts? Yes, the call to faithfulness might be a call to something. But... Beyond the call to something for something's sake, the call to something for faithfulness sake doesn't may not have the outcome as well defined Hmm. doing. I'm going to do this action because it will get me something. It it will have a desired outcome. And and we'll hear Jay talk about this later about outcomes and when what we can control and what we're in charge of and the power of realizing that we're not in charge of those. Yeah. I think kind of the the last piece that I have kind of that I wanted to take a note of is that the reason why he felt like he had to step away from activism isn't because he didn't think the work was good. Isn't because he couldn't justify it. It's because he felt like he was losing himself into he says judgmentalism, which I, I think as an ism is a pretty interesting one. Judgmentalism. Why aren't people getting it? Why aren't people getting it? And that kind of uh, internalized sense of kind of critique 
maybe a biting critique he 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 needed to turn away from um i think that's interesting right it's not oh i was a assassin or a a banker funding assassins or whatever something that people would say oh and i realized my life was horrible he was a an ecological activist and he felt like it wasn't tenable right it wasn't like the outward work was the problem it was what it was doing to him internally which uh, he did say affected the outward work mm-hmm. yeah but yes i i heard that and that is interesting oh one last thing so he tells he tells his his story of of conscience he he makes a comparison to john woman and the sparrow it's a robin in 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 john woman's life bird fact um (laughs) and for folks who don't know young john woman is out and sees a robin a mother robin in its nest and throws stones and kills the mother robin and then all of a sudden feels great contrition because he realizes that these baby robins are not going to be able to survive without their mother so he kills all the babies too, figuring that that's the most compassionate thing to do. And from that point forward, says his journal, or they say, he had a compassionate orientation towards all life. And we know that in his later life, he was a vegetarian when that was not pop- popular. And he was, he didn't use animal products. And um, anyway, that's the story. Jay talks about the experience of knowing in his being that he couldn't be baptized and makes a it's it's an interesting comparison right so it 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 it's a was a formative experience of him as a young person and it deepened and continued to work in him it was a time that he listened to the truth that was in his heart. It's way before he went to college and even more before he reoriented his life and, and laid down his activism, but he still points to that as the, the moment that he looks back on as evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, one of the things that kind of carrying a concern kind of that comes along with carrying a concern, it seems to me, is kind of a necessitated regular practice of self-reflection. Right. And and part of that, that's partly because you were trying to say, am I outrunning the guide? Am I underrunning the guide? And how and and so to to look at yourself in the moment, I think is is helped out by looking at yourself throughout the trajectory that brought you to this moment. Right. And I, th- I think we hear in a lot of these stories, people pointing out key moments that none of whom were, or most of whom were not the moment, moment, moment for all time, but, but were pieces of the story that when they look back on, they go, boom, 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 and now I'm here. And it seems like that's kind of part of the practice is to look back on your life and say, how did I get here? I am noticing as you lifted up that the importance of self-reflection that Jay mentioned that his schooling in what it means to be a Quaker was observing Michael Burkle, his countenance in worship, but also the fact of his lived life as a professor at Earlham working only half time so that he could 
have time for a fully developed spiritual life. And is that true about Michael Verkel? I don't think Jay's lying to us. I don't know the intricacies of Michael Burkle's working life. Hmm. But I think he's retired now. Is he? I don't, I don't know. Let's leave all this in. This is really great. <laughs> our, our expertise, everybody. We know all, we know everything about Quakerism. We know Michael Burkle's employment status. It's not true. We At all. Don't, we don't know that. Sorry, Michael. <clears throat> Good. He does smile and worship, though. It's true. the instigator for my mm. um, starting that process of clearness and support um, or then oversight um, started with a, a kind of a clear um, lead to go to uh, Pendle Hill with, with Noah and Kathleen, uh, Noah and um, what's her name from Multnomah? Marge Abbott. Marge, we're leading a like week of prophetic ministry. Stuff. Noah Baker Merrill. Yeah, yeah, and um, and so Kathleen and I, and there were uh, I don't remember there were a couple other friends from New England who who were there, and um, I felt really called to that and asked my meeting to send me, um, and. Uh, and that start, started the process. So talk about that. Why not just go? Um, why not just go? Well, I, I yeah, good, exactly. <laughs> um, this is where, like, I do wish like, I actually kept an actual journal, even personally, because <laughs> um, I, I don't really know. I, I, I had had read enough. And knew enough that that um, and and had experienced enough in my own activist life that I didn't want to do this as an individual. I was done with the individualist mm. thing. Um, and then if I was to go, um, I wanted to go on behalf of my meeting um, as well. Um, the very concrete stuff was that um, that's poor. <laughs> um, so we're looking for financial support as part partially of it. part of it yeah but yeah absolutely that was part of it um um i actually ha i wrote a letter uh -huh. with this request which was actually i don't yeah it's somewhere yeah um but it it was really clear that i was really clear at the time that that my going was not just for me it was mm. for us and for maybe even for the life of our religious society, but that, um, that, that, yeah, it wasn't just mine. Hmm. And, and, and now well, we're, we're jumping back and forth here, but, let's, <laughs> but, um, so that's, that was a group of people helping you, you asked for something mm -hmm. and they said, yes. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of a, a point in time, right? Send me to this yeah. thing at Pendle Hill. Do you now or have you ever had a group of people who has more consistent kind of um, 
oversight over you or anchoring or, or what's the language you use? Yeah, and what I, do those people do? And I use oversight and I talk about oversight with them and they keep saying support and I keep saying oversight. And it goes back and forth. What's what's that? What's so that for you? What's for there? me, oversight is like I I desire my meeting in some way to um, to make sure that I'm being faithful mm-hmm. and to hold me accountable to um, really what I'm led to and make sure that I'm not overstepping and making sure that I'm not understepping. Um, my meeting at this point is despite my trying to like encourage that is still deeply uncomfortable with that idea um in some ways um, uncomfortable that you want that uh, uncomfortable exercising that sort of authority and power um even though you're asking for it yeah yeah um so i at this point um I have not had an experience where my community, my committee has heard a no or a stop that I hadn't heard. Mm. Um, or a go that I haven't heard. Um, and I hunger for that day. Mm-hmm. Um, Why do you think that is? Um, I think part of it is I don't want to be feel so damn lonely, like that it's just me. Um, I I want I I hunger for the the um, I hunger for the meeting in our our society to um, to feel really engaged. And responsible for the nurturing of, of ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and I feel like <laughs> come back to this metaphor. Um, my ego is like a thermos mattress; it's self-inflating, and 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 I I I want the I want help in staying low. Mm. Um, yeah have you had an experience with if not with them with with someone doing that pruning and and what was it like if you yeah I feel like I have had some good like experiences where I've been like eldered this guy did had a good one for me at a yaff retreat a couple years ago Um, which was great um, because we're real with each other. Right. And that's like, that's what I'm tired of and why I think I hunger for that oversight is like, I just want to be real. Like, let's be real. What's really going on? Where are we? Uh, and how do we get there? And, and how, how am I either being mm-hmm. faithful or not? Um, do you think that because, because reticence to exercise that isn't real? I'm pushing you a little bit on this, but so people are afraid to kind of hold you to a standard of discipline. Mm-hmm. Is that not real? The reticence? Yeah. No, I think it is real. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think we need to, you know, that's there's a process. Problem is not talking about it. it. Is that the issue? It's not addressing the reticence or something like that. 
I'm, I'm asking this question for myself too, yeah. right? Because we can be a hair's breadth away from another kind of judgmentalism. Sure. You're not taking this real enough. Right. I want real crew. Right, 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 right. Right, and so we want to avoid that, right? Because yeah. we, we love lots of people that we're in community with. Oh my God. Right? Yeah. I mean, so what's that balance? Like, my, my committee is effing awesome. Yeah. Like, I love them, they love me, and right. it's... Right, that's not the issue, right? But yeah. you still feel alone. I mean, that's the thing I think is interesting, right? You love mm. them, they love you, and when you and I asked what the question is, said, I don't want to feel so alone. Mm-hmm. Right, there's something there, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's it like to be elder? So what do you mean by eldering? You mm-hmm. have been eldered, so maybe you didn't have what you do, uh, oversight, but you have been eldered. What what does that mean for you? Because that means different things for different people in different places. And I don't, I don't actually. When I going to back up, and let's we'll get to that in a second. Like I don't, I don't mean to say that my committee hasn't like told me to like slow down. At mm-hmm. It almost never happens in the in-person stuff. Um, like I wrote, a, I wrote a piece for Friends Journal on my lobster boat experience, and they very like I was away when I sent it to them, and they were very declarative, like this is not acceptable for you to send. Um, and you know, I didn't didn't submit it. Um, so hmm. I guess truthfully, there has been some good oversight. Hmm. Um, and they have exercised that. Um, the what they are really good at, and in and, and particular, what I love about the committee is that there are uh, two members in particular who, for whom, um, the the like biblically based gospel stuff is not their experience of Quakerism, and. Um, and for whom mushy good, both of whom, both of whom are scientists, both of whom I think they're both PhDs. Um, one is a like a physicist, and one is an engineer who does like builds robots for what's oceanographic. <laughs> like they're like awesome, um, and have been long, long time friends. Um, but that language doesn't resonate, and they're 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 testy or or um, not testy, but they're nervous around around mm. uh, Christian language in particular, um, spiritual language in general, and Christian language in particular. So their their consistent loving questions for explanation and like hold me to like dig underneath the meaning and try and really mm. be really clear mm. in a way mm. um, that's awesome um and i love and making sure that like i really am speaking the experience not the words um Mm -hmm. so that there is there is oversight there Hmm. um in that way as well and they yeah don't just say something jay like get down to it they make me drill down into it Hmm. in a way that's really loving and really good Hmm. um your question was about the experience of being elder. And is that eldering? So this is kind of I think it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, the questioning. The- although it, it can feel like, um, it can also feel like, uh, well, I don't know. I don't actually know. Um, because it, like, the experience of it is uh, 
an experience of someone asking questions for being like really like really <laughs> like come on mm. um jesus mm. really um you think god is gonna like give you the answers to those questions huh. um like very skeptical um and it's not uh it's i think it's different than being kind of like the sense of being like called out um for outrunning or um hmm. i guess how i yeah it sounds like it forces you to clarify um but it's different than someone saying like i don't i don't hear the life moving in what you're saying yeah. or yeah so it's not either or, right? It's not like you would want the one or not the no, other. No, 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 like yeah. yeah. No. So what is it about those other eldering experiences where someone's speaking your language in a way that holds you to a different kind of standard or commitment or something that, that's appealing? I mean, what what is it appealing about that? Or maybe it's not appealing. What about it is something? Well, no, it is appealing. I think what's appealing about it is that there's a... The being in a essentially use stupid educators language like like it's a community of practice that's practicing together and being real with each other and like using um, using our varied experience to to nurture the tr- prospering mm-hmm. of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what an elder is? Someone who can do that? Yeah, for me, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I really resonate with Jay's story about appealing to his meeting to go to the workshop at Pendle Hill with Noah Merrill and Marge Abbott. He says practically he did it because he didn't have the money, but he also knew that he didn't want to do things alone. When I was first, I wasn't, when I was young in my Quakerism, I was a member of Strawberry Creek Monthly Meeting and I was really drawn to a, going to a permaculture design training. I could have just gone, but something in me knew that it was connected to my life in the meeting and somehow to the meeting. I didn't have a support committee at the time. I don't think I knew really about eldering and oversight in the same way that we're talking about it. But I made a request to the meeting for financial support and... um they gave me support in in more ways than just that. I made a request to the meeting for support to do this travel because I felt like it was an extension of myself in the meeting. And the support that they gave me was twofold. First, they did give me a financial support, uh, some directly and also an invitation to do some creative fundraising. So I I mixed together dry ingredients and packaged them up and sold them as permaculture pancake mix, which just cracks me up now to think about. And then when I returned from the training, they scheduled an adult RE session where I was invited to talk about my experience at the design training 
how it related to my own faith journey as a friend and what I thought the implications were for us as a meeting. Uh, they wanted me to bring the fruits of my training back into the life of the meeting. And that, and that was an incredible experience. I think even more than the funds that they gave me to go to this training was to be invited to share it with the community and then to ponder how we might live into it. Yeah. And I think that question around living into it um, looks different for different people and people and what people want out of it and like living into what mm. is I think different for different people. Right. I mean, Jay, Jay talks about loneliness and it has nothing really to do with whether or not people see him because mm -hmm. I think he's a fairly uh, public friend um, and somewhat well-known within New England Yearly Meeting, at least, and certainly among the ecologically-minded friends um, of New England Yearly Meeting. But what he's looking for um, is people to kind of show up and kind of demand a responsibility from him. And so I think this is the kind of scenario where we, we don't have a one-size-fits-all scenario when people are looking to kind of come into relationship. What they're looking to get out of that relationship is really different depending on who the person is. I think that's right. That's how people work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the danger of that, though, is, right, like, well, everyone does... <laughs> everyone wants whatever they want out of Quakerism, and so anyone can do whatever they want. Right, that's the slippery slope of that side. Like whatever anyone wants to get out of this relationship is fine. And, you know, figuring out what what are the boundaries of our community? Are there things that we do have in common? Are there shared practices? Are there shared hopes and shared desires? Those, you know, maybe not nailing that stuff down, but talking about that stuff seems important. And I don't know as if we always talk about it as much as maybe Jay would like or I would like. Or I would like. Or you would I, like. I, I think there's a lot that we could be talking about in terms of our interior life and desires and our longings. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he, he uses the phrase, I want to get low. Um, and, and, you know, that made me really think about one of the, the, the kind of um, things that, that spun me off thinking about is the fact that, you know, it's one thing for Jay to say, you know, I really want to have that committee help me stay low or get low. Um, but th that that's probably not the best uh, prescription for everyone. You know, I'm thinking about, it was a very famous kind of book and interaction where a guy named Niebuhr wrote this book about the kind of the nature of human sin. And it more or less boils down to kind of pride or action or kind of thinking that you're the center of something instead of God. And, um, this woman named Valerie Saving, who's kind of an early feminist theologian, wrote, yeah, man, you get that right for you. Like for dudes, and this is largely white people we're talking about here, right? But the, the human condition around sin being based in pride and doing too much and thinking you're too powerful, yeah, you're totally right for you, right? That that the issue for many women wasn't pride, but, but not living up to what flourishing would look like, not living fully into um, what maybe God would have them do, not because of their own failings, 
our own sinfulness, but because of the societal structures that make it more challenging for women to live into the fullness of their power. So I think it's really important for me when I hear Jay say, I need to make sure I have a committee to make sure I get low. I say to myself, that might track for me, but some other people might need committees and, and responsible uh, communities and accountability to say, you're beating yourself up too much. You can live more fully into this. You can be freer. You can be out there more. Your voice can be heard more. Um, I think that that plays a lot along issues of power and privilege around race, um, kind of ability, uh, class probably also. And so, and so I just am, am aware this is yet again another reason why we need to be talking to one another about these things. Lest we assume that everyone's needs in the ministry are the same, we need to figure out for ourselves and then allow other people to help us figure out for us and then also help other people figure out what they most need to kind of live into um, the fullness, not the too muchness or the not enoughness, but the fullness of, of, of what it looks like to steward and exercise those gifts. Totally. And to, to frame it another way, to, to use a different um, framework than um, Niebuhr and theologians, in 12-step uh, programs, especially originating from um, AA, the work in the big book, the, the work of the 12 steps is, to, is essentially about getting low. It's about having too much pride. Jay talks about how his Ego is self-inflating. And the men who who wrote the big book and came up with a 12-step program all talked about their egos as being too much. Charlotte Castle, who is a feminist, um, also a Quaker, in her book, One Journey, Many Roads, talks about that's great for you guys, but women, people of color, uh, people without power, may be caught up in the throes of addiction, not because their ego is overinflated, but because they have self-loathing and they need to build up self-confidence and belief in themselves. It's really a very similar thing. And it, that makes me think that when we talk about accountability and you know, I was, I, I talk about this holding the feet to the fire. And even I, when I use that phrase, I think of it as a, um, a kind of burning off the, the chaff image. But it could also be live fully into who you are and what you are given. Mm -hmm. Kind of a Howard Thurman call to the sound of the genuine. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that at the heart of this conversation, how, however you slice it or dice it, the invitation that Jay wants that I think is resonant with you and me, at least, and I think we've heard it from a number of other people, is for a deepening kind of relationship, a kind of relationship that is intimate enough that people are willing to say to one another, hey, friend, it seems like you've overstepped or you're understepping people who are in each other's business enough to know how it is that they're experiencing the movement of God in the world and their attempts to live faithfully into that, however that looks. And lacking that kind of intimacy, um, eldership 
doesn't really look like much of anything other than finger wagging. We, we, that for someone to really have accountability over my work, they need to know me. They don't need to like me or, or, be, or be like me, but they do need to know what I'm doing and how I am in the world um, so that they have some measure of uh, ability to understand what it is I'm doing when I'm trying to be of service in the world. And I think that that, that's part of what he, I think when he says he's lonely, it's maybe that not that people aren't being faithful to their oversight over him, but feeling like maybe there aren't people who know him that way. What, what do you think ministry is in the Religious Society of Friends? Mm-hmm. Kind of either, I guess, like historically or in the present? Like, how do you understand that? It, I, I, well, this is like my basic experience. Like, I hunger for the presence of ministers among us mm-hmm. to to enliven and embolden our worship and our, our meetings. Who's us? Um, us, friends in New England. Um, like, even just, like, West Falmouth Friends Meeting would be a richer place if once a month someone was showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, the traveling ministry is what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A traveling ministry that is, that pollinates, mm-hmm. um, and a, a traveling ministry that's 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 a gospel ministry. Mm-hmm. That's what does that mean for me? Um, for me, it's not that one can't have ministries with and labor under concerns that are a ministry, but that that um, that the lifeblood of our religious society is a gospel ministry that that points towards the way the friend's way or Jesus's way or whatever that way, however we want to think of that way. Um, and that invites, uh, those of us who are, who, who worship as friends, um, to be faithful. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to a ministry of concern for Earth care or a ministry for fair trade economic practices, right. a ministry, a gospel ministry, which is about faithfulness. Yeah. 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 Um, so then the follow up question is Are you a minister? Uh, that's, uh, I don't think, a label that one can don oneself. So now you just said you lo- you you yearn for ministers among us. Mm-hmm. If we can't don those for ourselves, who does that? Our meetings. Okay. So if a meeting is unwilling to call someone a minister, ministers cannot emerge from that meeting. Uh, no, that's not true. But. Um, <laughs> Well, what's funny about that? I mean, let's like let's play with it. What's funny about it? I think what's 
what's funny there for me is that that there has to I think I think for it to be like good ministry there has to be relation there mm. and someone just spinning off into oblivion as a minister um, isn't ministering to the body um, and and I think we you know I think there are examples contemporary examples of of um, named ministers who for whom that that happens um, and Yeah, so I think I think I think an authentic ministry is seen as a ministry from both ends, mm. not just it's like the subjective, like I am a minister, but is recognized. Oh, that is ministry. Like I see that. Like we see that. Um, otherwise, it's too easy to get caught up in ego, and that's not to say that friends, because we are friends cannot minister like it's not not to say we can't minister to one unto one another Mm -hmm. um absolutely Mm -hmm. um yeah do you feel like sometimes you've ministered to folks i think so Mm -hmm. um it feels i mean just my sense that uh today and yesterday was that was that um what i was given spoke to the condition of of people um and and challenged people and felt faithful and faithfully delivered and um yeah i don't know that the, i mean and then so i was like that doesn't necessarily make me a minister yeah. but the, but but um yeah i mean that's always interesting to me too right because if someone babysits they're just a babysitter that's just what they are or someone right. ministers, well, I don't know if they're a minister. Because that category has like a special cultural sheen on it. Mm-hmm. And I agree, like, I, I mean, for, so for me, like, the thing is that it's about naming. It's not about, like, crowning. It's about, like, seeing the thing and naming the thing the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but one can't just put on the jacket. Or the hat and be like poof minister, like without it being, I think, in relationship. With that meaning. Yeah. I mean, you can't just decide that you're a babysitter. Right. Someone has to hire you and think it deem you worthy of babysitting. Yeah. Great example. (laughs) Or, yeah, interesting. So, So I hear in you kind of a desire and a longing for. Um, not only, or I'm wondering if I hear this in you. Not not only accompaniment, but but then there underneath the accompaniment. Therefore, you want something for yourself, which is a kind of discipline and a kind of service. And we heard in the plenary a desire to, um, as Thomas Kelly says, go the other way, go the other half. Yeah. Um. Um. So that suggests that there's at least been some kind of tasting of first fruits of what it's like to kind of go the other half sometimes. Uh, yeah. So what's, what was it like? I mean, what's it like to kind of have that on your heart or however you would say it? Like, what's it like to be called into wanting that? Like, what, what was that like for you? Not abstractly, but for Jay O'Hara. Well, I, I mean, 
I don't know that I've been, I don't know that I'm ready to claim that I've been to heaven, but, um, but I, I do feel like the, that, that all of, all of Paul's fruits of the spirits, like I feel like I've experienced that and, and that, that it's the hunger and the longing that I have is for others to experience it too less to have a and to and to build a community of people for whom that is that is what, why we're here mm-hmm. um, um, and and I just I mean I don't know how else to to describe the utter joy and clarity of um, potentially being going to prison and like being ready being ready and and I don't know that I'm ready to be like Mary Dyer who's you know spent for you know whatever days in prison as like um, in paradise um, but I think I I think I've experienced some of what she talks she's talking about um, and I would just God, love to share that with people what can you imagine that might be like? I mean, I don't want to like give you the answer to the question. And... Um, I mean, for me, it's like for step one, pattern and example. Like I just have to do it myself, mm-hmm. and maybe someone will see that and see that experience in themselves, or, or recognize that mm-hmm. within themselves. Um, that that might minister to them, um, and and as as I'm led to to testify to it, mm-hmm. um, I don't know where that leads. Yeah, I don't have any big vision plan. Um, uh, you just recently um, kind of gave uh, the plenary here at New England Young Meeting Sessions, and one of the things you said in there is, um, um, you know, you heard a story or you were participating in an event where um, kind of a, a comment or an aside was made to you, like, we're doing a great job, but it's not like anyone's going to sell their house, mm-hmm. right? Saying, look, there's limits to what we can do right. in terms of activism or service or commitment or yeah. self-sacrifice, maybe. Yeah. Um, where are you um, in terms of kind of understanding limits or not in, in terms of what's possible for you, for other people, and, and how do you engage with other folks who have different limits than you? I think that that was like, that was like my big frustration, like dealing with other people was like my big frustration thing. And people are hard Judgment, huh? like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm much more, pe- I'm not like even at peace with that individual who still is a challenge for me. Um, um, but for me, 
I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced that with God, everything is possible. Mm. And that's not like, if we believe in God, anything might happen. That's like, if we actually give ourselves over, like, I can't predict what, what we can do. Um, and, and I, I am absolutely not interested in, in, telling others or have any idea that I would know what others place in that Hmm. is. Um, But I do, my experience has been that as I try to walk Thomas Kelly's path of holy obedience, that the more I give over the more I'm given um, and and that I I think people would be surprised if they found themselves able to let go of, of some of the things that that we think of us security um, and and place our heart rather our treasure rather in heaven or whatever um i keep i mean for me like the lobster boat thing is like (laughs) that's that's what happened like we odds were we were going to like get handcuffed within an hour and uh spend a bunch of time in jail like that's what we thought was gonna happen we thought we were gonna get like patriot act terrorism charges like that that was possible in the legal realm of of ramifications for what we were doing um and we were ready to give up. And is that yours? Is that what that means? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we were ready to give that up. Like, we'd already, like, decided that our lives, like, that that was a fine way to spend our lives. And and having come at it from that perspective of having given over that much of your life or what could be your life, not hoping, not being like, yeah, hopefully we can get away with just, like, some misdemeanor charges and, like, get a good bail deal or whatever. Um, but going in ready to take the full whatever comes um, somehow in living that um, outlook mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, more was given than we ever could have imagined right um and i can you know i can play two sides of this i can ascribe it all to luck well like you got lucky and the da just was a good guy um and the coast coast the coasties were particularly nice or whatever uh, but i don't think that that's the whole story that mm-hmm. there's there's something of giving and the willingness to have given given it up um, that allows one to go out into the world with a different sort of energy that invites something transformative. But it seems also that it's not like you didn't want to go to jail for three years. No. Like that wasn't the that was not the point. Right. It wouldn't have been better if you got that instead of getting off easy. Well it might have been but I sure don't get to make the decision of whether it's better or not. Mm. Hmm, That's see. definitely say not more about that. Oh, like I particularly I was particularly conscious of this going into the trial thing. Like 
I did not know, and, and I think it's human hubris to think we know what the right outcome is. And, like, there is in some ways, like, you know, you can play all sorts of mental games. Like, oh, it would have been better if you had served, like, six months in jail and you would have been, like, a, a hero or something. Because the story would have been better. So, or, yeah, or whatever. Or um, it would have been better if you had been able to, like, per, you know, put Dr. James Hansen and Bill McKibben and whoever else on the stand and, like, have a big show trial. Maybe that would have been better. But... That's not my job. Like, I don't know. Like, it's, I don't get to decide. I don't, eh? hmm. Seems like there's a lot of... And that was the same, I think, with the action itself. Like, I don't, I don't know what the best outcome was. Like, there were all sorts of moments where I was, like, deciding whether, you know, what we were going to do at that moment. And, and if I had, if, if we had thought all the way through of, like, no, we wanted to look exactly like this, through this part, do this be an asshole in this direction um, or whatever um, that we wouldn't have been under immediate guidance which mm-hmm. I think we were as we did it um, particularly around like I had the key to the lock that locked the giant anchor to the bottom of the boat in my pocket the whole time um, and there were a couple of times where we were like should we throw this overboard I don't think so um, and In responding that way, being curious, being open to continual guidance, and trusting that the right thing is going to happen, whatever it is, um, just the dispenses with the fear, dispenses with the anxiety, and, and allows one to, in being in the hands of God, mm-hmm. to be the hands of God, because we're able to then approach everything with love because we're not worried about how it's going to turn out. And we can be fully present and not anxious, mm-hmm. not worried. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, and I, I, my suspicion is that, that, that the gospel words are true, that if we are in a place where we're not worried about where our, how we're going to feed ourselves and not worried about how we're going to clothe our, ourselves and, um, then we're going to be held and miraculous things that we never would have expected are going to happen. So, I don't know, try to live into that. So the thing that is totally wild to me about this last kind of piece, it's been like two years, I think, since we recorded this, maybe like a year and a half. And um, just this morning, I was reading Barclay's Apology in Modern English, as one does. I was going to say, like you do. Like you do. And um, so that text, right, is like one of the first and only kind of Quaker theology systematic texts that's kind of answering all of the things in the second generation of friends. Anyway, there's this part in there. Where um where he's trying to figure out like wh- what ministry is and how you know what ministry is if it's not learning Greek and Hebrew and Latin and doing all these like school things but like how do you know 
And um, one of the things that Jay says is that ministry needs to be seen from both ends. Right? He says he doesn't want people to just kind of decide their ministers and spin off into oblivion, right? Um, and so both from the perspective of the individual, they should see their own life as a response to kind of God's call or, or spirit's call or that deepening transcendent power, that peaceable force. But it's also the case that your community would often want to see that. And there's this passage that's in the 10th proposition about ministry, which is almost identical uh, to that. And I think it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating because I don't, I don't think Jay's purposefully quoting from Barclay's apology, but, but there's this sense within Quakerism that th- has gone back a long time that there's a, a, a resonance there. The God who gathers Christians also provides ministers and teachers among all of those Christians with the inward unmediated operation of the, his own spirit to watch over and instruct them and maintain them in an animated, refreshed, and powerful condition. Their call to ministry is verified in the hearts of their brethren, and the seals of their apostleship are the awareness of the life and power passing through them, which daily and inwardly reinforces them in the most holy faith. Hmm. Right? Their call is verified in the hearts of their brethren. Mm-hmm. Their call is not verified in their own self-sense, but in the hearts of their brethren. I think, th- th- I mean, I hear, how does Jay say it? Ministry has to be seen from both ends. Right. You aren't just a babysitter without having someone to babysit. Someone who wants you to babysit. Right. We are now uh, excited to say that we've gotten uh, our first uh, listener email, and uh, it's from Will Tabor. It's really awesome that you're uh, sending this in. And so we wanted to share this with you all, because Will has a perspective on the Melody Brazo episode, which is really, um, I think, pretty great. So um, thanks, Will and Christina, if you would. Sure. So Will writes, Hi. Your final segment about the hireling ministry got me thinking about how, or whether, the stand against hireling ministers was part of a larger challenge to the existing social order and part of the Quaker stand against tithes and an established church. As I understand it, many of the postings of ministers, especially to rural parishes, were political appointments and In some cases, the appointed ministers did not bother to show up at their parishes for long periods of time. So this was part of a larger critique of the social order. I heard enough hints of this to get me thinking about it in new ways, but that kind of connection might be missed by someone who's not so familiar with 17th century British history. Anyway, it's a great start. Will. So... Uh, I am also not super familiar with 17th century British history, although perhaps more than many people. I'm certainly not a British historian, but I thought, you know, there is some truth to this understanding of the way that the Church of England would appoint people to these um, rural parishes, and it kind of functioned as a status symbol almost, um, or a, um, a leverage, a political leverage maneuver for the family of that person. Um, and so while I can't, can make any 
convincing historical argumentation one way or the other. It's certainly worth considering, uh, I think, Will, uh, that that the stance against the hireling ministry may have, in the very least, been a, a an attempt to challenge or resist against these kind of structures of the, of the use of power for the gain of political capital as opposed to the to the entering more fully into the peaceable reign of God. Thanks, Will, for writing this email and also for modeling for other people the ways in which we hope that this series will be increasingly a dialogue that you will write in with your observations, your historical facts, and your comments and questions about episodes. Concerns also. Um, you know, a lot of this is just Christina and I reflecting on the powerful testimony of friends. And so uh, any of it is something you can have issue with. Indeed. We want to thank Fresh Pond Monthly Meeting for the oversight of our ministry for my committee and for Christina's committee. We also want to thank the Legacy Gift Fund of New England Yearly Meeting for financial support of this podcast. As well as the Obadiah Brown Benevolent Fund. And Salem Quarter. Once again, we want to thank Blue Dot Sessions for making such incredible music available. This week, we heard from the tracks Coronea, Promesa, Our Quiet Company. And um, we just want to say thanks so much for hosting such a great place for improvisation and making that music free to the world. You folks are awesome. We couldn't do it without all of them and all of you listening. And we hope that as you move forward, you find creative and novel ways to use this content. And if you do, you'll let us know how you're using it. You can check everything out on ocacshow.org. Or you could find the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Or Facebook. You can play it from lots of those different places. And we hope to hear from you and see you again in the audio space next week. Thanks for listening.